Peace of Christ be with you. And all. Uh, as Mary said, my name is Trig V. Johnson. Trigger, trigonometry, T, whatever's easiest for you. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Mary, and all of Calvin College for having me. It's a great privilege. I want to thank, this must be the true elect. <laughs> Those that actually come on a, on, because it's really the first day of spring, is it not? I mean, it's the first day we, we have felt the earth melt just a little bit as it spins on its axis. And it's, I think this is right for us to worship and to remember that there is a God who sustains us from the rising of the sun into its setting and from season to season. And though the air conditioning is cool and it's hot outside, we remember that it's God who, who makes the seasons in the world run. And I just feel like worshiping tonight. So thanks for having me. Six weeks ago, we opened the door and we stepped outside and we turned east. And we started on the way. We started walking step by step towards Jerusalem. Six weeks ago, we opened the door and stepped outside and began the journey we call Lent. It's a season of preparing. It's a season of letting some things go so we can travel light on this journey. We're on the way together. And you and I know that when we're on the way together, one of the things that we like to do is tell the stories that we know, the family stories, the stories that get inside of us that we pass down from generation to generation. Those are some of the stories that keep us going and orient us in the right direction as we head step by step east towards Jerusalem. We are on the way. And tonight I want to invite you to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, and listening to one of our family stories. And we catch up Jesus and his disciples who are also on the way towards Jerusalem. Hear the word of the Lord as it comes to us from the Gospel of Mark. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands and to be killed. And on the third day after being killed, he is to be risen and rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And then they came to Copernicus. And when they were in the house, Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way, they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and put it among them. And taking it in his arms, he said, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not only me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. We are on the way. And when you're on the way together, you meet some interesting people. I can't 
hear that family story and not remember one of the people who I met along the way. I want you to come with me to 1979, Oak Harbor, Washington on Whidbey Island. It's an island floating on the currents of the Puget Sound right on the edge of the North American continent. It's a small little Dutch church, and I'm five years old. And out of the corner of my eye, I see him. He's a short, stubby, bald man, face weathered in a gray flannel suit. But when I see him, he's got the Tupperware in his hands. And he comes over to me. I run out, go over to him. I say, can I have a cookie? And he says, little Trigvi, welcome in Jesus' name. Of course you can have a cookie. Anytime you come to church, you can have a cookie. I love the cookie man. <laughs> it's 1984, and I'm 10 years old. And there I see him out of the corner of my eye. It's the cookie man. He's got a gray polyester suit. I think it's the same suit he wore in 1978. He's a short, stubby, bald man with a weathered face, but he's got the Tupperware. And I run up to him and I say, cookie man, can I have a cookie? And he says, here you go, little trig. You can have it in Jesus' name. You can always have a cookie when you come to church. I love the cookie man. <laughs> it's 1990 and I'm 16 years old and I'm too cool to care because I'm a sophomore in high school and I just got my license and I'm super cool. <laughs> but I'm at church and I see him out of the corner of my eye. He's a short, stubby, bald man with a weathered face. He's getting older, you can tell, and he's wearing a gray polyester suit. I think it's the same suit from 1984, 1978. I think he only had one suit. And he came running up, I come running up to him, and I say, yeah, can I have, can I have a cookie? <laughs> and he says, Trigby, of course you can have a cookie. You can have it in Jesus' name. Anytime you come to church, you can always have a cookie. I love the cookie man. <laughs> it's 1995, and I'm a junior in college, and I'm home on spring break. I'm visiting my parents. I'm past the season of being too cool to care, and I'm beginning to waken up to the wider world and feeling gratitude for all of those people in your life that you meet along the way, who speak into your life at just the right time. And I see him out of the corner of my eye, and I go over to Unc, the cookie man, and I say, Unc, can I have a cookie? I know I'm, I'm, I'm gone now, I've left home, but can I have a trade? You can have a cookie in Jesus' name. Anytime you come to church, you can have a cookie. Of course you can. It's 2008 and I'm 34 years old. And I'm back home for Christmas visiting my mom and dad. And there I see him out of the corner of my eye in his gray flannel suit. Short, stubby man with a wrinkled face. He's moving a lot slower these days, but there he is with a Tupperware full of vanilla cookies. And around him, I swear, he was like the Pied Piper. There was just hundreds of little kids gathering around to the cookie man, the cookie man. And I, can I have a cookie? Of course you can have a cookie, he would say. Anytime you come to the church, you can have a cookie. 
I went over to him, a 34-year-old pastor, working on my doctorate. Can I have a cookie? <laughs> of course you can have a cookie, he says. Sure, you can always have a cookie. I remember, you're welcome. <laughs> that was the last time I got a cookie from the cookie man. And I really wish I would have given him a hug. The cookie man, anytime I went to church, he was always there in his gray polyester suit. A short, stubby man, unconsequential to most of the world. But he was always there at church, and he always had Tupperware, always ready to give the children a cookie. I can't hear that story from Mark. The story about Jesus taking the children into his arms and placing it among them and saying, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And not only the one, not only me, but the one who sent me. I can't hear that and not think about Ankh every week kneeling down to children and offering them a cookie. He helped build that church with his own hands that were like a, like a steel vice. But when you touched them, they were soft to children. His real name, the cookie man's real name, was John Reinches, but all of his friends called him Unk. And because everyone was Unk's friend, everyone just called him Unk. Here's a picture of Unk. This is him when he was a young man, just back from salmon fishing. A nice cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And that's the cookie man. He looked a little better in his gray polyester suit. You can take, take it down. He ran a backhoe most of his life. He always sat in the same pew in church. He was on, the, on and off the consistory. He was one of the elders, as elders are, on and off. But he was always the elder. He was always the patriarch. I think he had an eighth grade education but I don't know if I've ever encountered a more wise man. He didn't have a lot of money. He lived really humble. But I don't know anyone who was more wealthy. When you had a problem, you'd go see Unc. When there was a disagreement in the church, the two parties would often avoid the pastor and Unc would work it out. Or if they'd see the pastor, the pastor would send them to Unc. <laughs> he was the cookie man. You have to take the word of the cookie man. Year after year, season after season, Unk showed up and offered children cookies. But he was more than that to this church. He was one of the pillars that helped the whole structure stay together. And so when my father called about a year ago and told me that Unk had died, it felt like something in my life sagged just a little bit. So you meet these amazing people along the way. People like Unk. And you know, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't have the eyes to see when I was 16 and too cool to care. But Unk was great. He was a great man. Greatness is in short supply. But I believe with all my heart that greatness is what we are called to. You and I, in the body of Christ, are called by our Lord and our Redeemer to be great.
but that might look different than what our normal definitions of greatness look like. I didn't have the eyes to see it when I was on the way growing up, but I, every week, encountered greatness. And it came disguised in a short, stubby man in a gray polyester suit, the cookie man. You and I, I believe, are called by our Lord to be great. That's one of the things we hear echoed in this family story that we are listening to tonight along the way. Jesus and his disciples are passing through Galilee. This band of brothers is just a week away from entering into Jerusalem. That week when the palms are going to be flying. That week of triumphant entry. That week when after three years of sleepless nights, three years of being tested, of traveling, and being taught by Jesus without a home where their pillow is a rock, three years of this disciplined discipleship, now they're going to get their just rewards. They're heading east towards Jerusalem, and this band of brothers is on the way with the Messiah, the one who has come to put the world to rights, Jesus is going to throw out the puppet king. He is going to throw out the pretender that suggests that Israel is to be ruled by a puppet from Rome. Jesus is going to put the world to rights and the disciples are going to be his mighty men. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. And on the way, the disciples' imaginations, I imagine, are puffing up and anticipating significance, anticipating a life of consequence. They're going to be with Jesus when he comes into his glory. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, so do the disciples right behind him. They're passing through Galilee. They're heading towards Capernaum. And along the way, apparently, the disciples start breaking out in an argument. It happens, doesn't it? along the way, sometimes with those that we love the most, especially in our families, maybe within our institutions, maybe within your disciplines, we start arguing, sizing each other up. Who's the best? Who's the greatest? Who's going to get tapped to be the person that they rely on? Who is going to be the one chosen to be Jesus' right-hand person? Along the way, that sense of pride can kind of get in there and we start arguing amongst the group. It happens on the way. It happens to the best of us and it was happening to the disciples. They get to Capernaum that night. They're in somebody else's house, I imagine, and Jesus asked them, knowing full well what was going on, a question he already knew the answer to. What were you arguing about on the way? He asked. And they looked down, and they were silent. Because no one wants to say that we were arguing about who we thought was the best, right? That sense of pride, that arrogance. No one wants to be the, the one that kind of pops up to kind of get beat down. So they were just silent. And what's interesting is that Jesus sits down 
And he calls the 12, and he says this. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. In a verse, in a sentence, he reframes everything for us. Whoever, whoever, whoever wants to be first must be servant, last of all, and servant of all. In one verse, in one moment, he redefines for us an ambition for our life, a desire, an orientation of what it means to be great. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is calling us to be great. And as we listen to this, there are three things that I think that are profound consequence for our life together as we travel along the way, east towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, and ultimately towards the resurrection where Jesus wipes the cobwebs out of his eyes and steps into the bright light of a fresh new dawn and says, peace be with you. Do you notice that Jesus' teaching is calling us to be great. But it is a greatness that has a genius in it. And the genius is this. The first part of the genius is that he doesn't cut the nerve of greatness. Whoever wants to be great, he says, he doesn't chastise the desire of the disciples to be great. He says, be great, but this is what it's going to look like. Oftentimes, We are very suspicious within the Christian community of having aspirations for greatness, and rightfully so, because that kind of desire in a fallen world can go sideways really quickly. Augustine calls it increvitas ense, desire turned in on itself, so that our natural desires, originally blessed and created by God after the fall, get twisted and turned. Evil is not a separate entity. All things are created by God and called good, but in the fall, what God calls good gets twisted in on itself. Even the desire for greatness, and that desire in us can be that which seeks competition, and that competition can create fragmentation, and that fragmentation can create healing throughout the world and in the body. And everything that Jesus came to restore is all about untwisting those desires. But what he didn't come to do is get rid of those desires. You have a desire for greatness. Whoever wants to be great, he didn't say don't be great. Whoever wants to be great, you are called to be great. It reminds me of this quote from C.S. Lewis, and let me see if I can pull it up. C.S. Lewis writes in this great sermon, The Weight of Glory, He says the New Testament teaches has a lot to say about self-denial, but not self-denial as an end in and of itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our cross in order that we may follow Jesus. And nearly every description that we ultimately find when we do so has an appeal to desire. Indeed, when we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards that are found in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Indeed, we are half-hearted creatures messing about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who is content on making Making mud pies in the slums, 
because he cannot imagine, he cannot imagine what is offered by a holiday at the sea. We are too easily satisfied. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. I believe that you are called to greatness. And I believe that God has put a desire in you for greatness. But here's the thing. It's not the picture that the world gives. Jesus' genius picture is of a greatness disguised. The first genius part is that you, we each are endowed with a desire for greatness. But here's the second. The second is that everyone can do it. One of the things that, it's not a really sanctified joy in my life, but it's close. I love March Madness. I absolutely love it. I am like a, just a giddy schoolboy on the selection Sunday, and all the teams come out, and I've got like six or seven different um, brackets that I fill out, and I love it. I just love it. I, I call my dad. We do, it's, it's the kind of thing we do I, with the people I work with, with students. I just love March Madness. I love all of the games and the surprises and the underdogs, and I don't know if this was, if anyone had a perfect bracket this year, I'd give you $1,000 right now. I don't know if anyone predicted Butler and VCU to be in the national championship. No, it was, that's not right. UConn. Yeah, you, somebody probably got that right. But here's the thing. 64 teams over three weeks, and it starts getting whittled down. And whittled down. Two people meet in competition, and one goes on. You enter a tournament, and at the end of the tournament, only one, only one gets to be great. Only one team gets to cut down the nets. Only one team gets to unfurl a banner next season, say national championships. Only one. It's part of the enjoyment, right? This natural selection that happens. But Jesus' invitation to greatness has a completely different feel. We all can be great. Because whoever wants to be great must be the last of all and servant of all. And that's not something only one can do. We all can do this. We all can be great. Jesus' definition of greatness doesn't leave it to one person, one team, one church, one college. Jesus' picture of greatness is passed around and can be shared by everyone. Everyone here has the opportunity every single day to be great. You have an opportunity to be great with your roommate. You have an opportunity to be a great student every single day by doing your assignment, by listening to your professor, by doing those little things that no one sees, the things that are often in your mind and in your heart. You have an opportunity, you, every day to be great, and you can do this. You are called to do this. Whoever wants to be great must be Last of all and servant of all. Whoever wants to be first must put others ahead of themselves is what Jesus is doing. And that's not something only one of us is called to be, but what we're all called to be. Jesus' call to greatness is disguised. And it's genius because we are all have the desire for greatness and we all can fulfill that natural 
desire. We all can do this. And the third reason why it's, it's genius is that there's not one way to do it. There is as many ways to be great as your imagination can think of. It's not a one-size-fits-all desire. I love playing chess, and one of the reasons why I love playing chess is that there's many paths towards the end. It's a creative game. I play with my father-in-law. It's a natural kind of competition we have um, that allows us to, to talk about things that we might not normally talk about. But what I love about playing chess with my father-in-law is the imagination, the possibilities that develop in a game. Your life is kind of like that chess game. There are so many different imaginative possibilities that you can take, particularly at this point in your life. Each of you is endowed with incredible gifts. Each of you has natural desires and seeds in you that you're making important decisions about where you're going to invest them, whether it's law or medicine or education or scholarship or romance or friendship. In each one of these areas, there is a million different possibilities to imagine about how to be great in the way that Jesus calls us to be great. There's not a one way to do this, which is incredibly freeing. Every day is a possibility to explore together as a community on the way what it means to be great, to put others before ourselves, to untwist the desires of selfish interest and self-protection that over time just domesticate us and make our life with God small and cramped. But Jesus' command to greatness calls us out of the small, cramped world to step out into the bright light of a fresh new dawn and run wild in the wide open country of salvation. And as we run wild, there are lots of paths and there's lots of creativity that we can have together to be great. This is what I believe. I believe there's not a person here that the Holy Spirit is not at work in. There's not a person here that doesn't have a possibility to be great every single day. This night, this time, and this moment. There are lots of ways that you can do this, but you have to make conscious decisions. Jesus is calling us to be great, and there's not one way to do it. I, lo- I love this story by Kaim Potok, one of my favorite writers. Wrote The Promise, The Chosen, My Name is Asher Lev, and he tells the story of going off to college. His mother pulls him off aside and says, Kaim, I, I know you want to be a writer, but listen to your mother. Be a brain surgeon. You'll make a lot of money. You'll keep a lot of people from dying. Just listen to me. No, no, Mom, I want to be a writer. I know what I want to do. So he goes off to college, and he comes back home for a break, and his mother pulls him to the side and says, Kaim, I know you want to be a writer. No, but, but listen to me. Listen to your mother. I know you. I love you. Be a brain surgeon. You'll, you'll keep a lot of people from dying. You'll make a lot of money. You'll have a life of security, I promise you. No, Mom, I, I want to be a writer. He came home and this conversation was repeated every vacation, every break, every time she could get him away. Kaim, I know you want to be a writer, but listen to me. I know best. You're wasting your time. Be a brain surgeon. You'll keep a lot of people from dying. You'll make a lot of money. No, Mom. I want to write. 
And these conversations intensified over the next four years. These, this intensity built up where finally detonated the counter-explosion. Kime, I know you want to be a writer, but listen to me. You're wasting your life and your promise and your possibility. Be a brain surgeon. You'll keep people from dying. And he jumped in. I don't want to keep people from dying. I want to show them how to live. I want to show them how to live. There's not one way to be great. And you can all be great. In fact, you have a God-given desire to be great. And I think that greatness is about showing others how to live. No matter what God is calling you to be, whether it's to be a writer or whether it's to be a brain surgeon, whatever God is calling you to be, be it. But do it in a way that shows others how to live. And ultimately, that is what Jesus is preparing his disciples to see along the way. For on the way, he was teaching his disciples something important, something they could not grasp. That the Son of Man is to be betrayed and handed over into human hands, and he's going to be killed. And three days after being killed, he is to rise again. He's preparing his disciples for a different kind of greatness. And you and I are heirs of those disciples. We, you and I, are on the way with them, heading east towards Jerusalem. And we shall be surprised. And that surprise, though it begins in darkness, ends up with a light that the darkness cannot overcome. It's that light that is still refracting down the canyons of time and reaches us tonight and invites us to a table where we remember that our greatness can never be matched by our Lord's, who didn't just give us a model, but gave us a life to give us life. Let us pray.